Thanks for tuning in to this month's Cinematic Schematic. In order to keep this programming, we need your help. That's right, if you're listening, we need you. If you enjoy this ad-free programming of the Cinematic Schematic, please support the show by subscribing to the podcast and giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. We'd also like to keep talking movies with you on our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy the show! and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we'll close out our month examining the genre of blockbuster films with a review and in-depth discussion over one of the summer's most anticipated superhero movies from May, Deadpool 2. Would Cable then be in our age? No, because he's the son of, like, Gen Xers. Wait, but this is the 90s. I'm just trying to think of, like, what generation we're on. You're thinking a little too hard about uh, time travel next been already, Alexander. Uh, yeah, that's true. And later, we'll continue the superhero conversations in the latest edition of Soundtrack, where we'll discuss the evolution of blockbuster film scores, especially as they relate to everyone's favorite caped crusaders going back to the iconicness of theme and how that can summon mental pictures in your mind, the Batman theme from Danny Elfman um, was used in Lego Batman the video game, uh, all these Lego Batman games, um, and apparently the Justice League movie, which I haven't seen. All of this is coming to you next. And welcome to your film review and in-depth discussion segment of the Cinematic Schematic. I'm your host, Caleb Masters. For our review segment, Silver Screen Soliloquies, we're normally joined by Ron Chapman, but he's a little occupied currently with a, a new movie he has worked on that's about to premiere later in June called You People. You might have heard of it at this point. So sitting in his place is the lovely voice and mastermind behind Soundtrack, Alexandra Bohannon. What's up, Caleb? K-Dog. C-Dog, actually. If we're K-Dog, gonna be C-Dog? C-Dog. C-Dog, like you could do it like C is in the letter C and then also C is in like the ocean blue. Alexandra Bohannon here. Yeah, this is just a, this is a Caleb and Alex uh, month. Laurent will be rejoining us to actually talk in depth about, about his movie. About you people, about which you is people. dope. We've got a lot of awesome Dead Center interviews coming your way and one of them, the first of which is Laurent Chapman and his uh, producer Yusuf. Before we get there, though, we're actually here to talk today about Deadpool 2. Yes. For me, personally, not highly anticipated because I saw the first one in a Hollywood theater at 5 p.m. by myself three or four weeks after it had already come out. Well, so those, those, ch- those chimichangas had already cooled off. Yeah, they were uh, fairly uh, crusty and a bit cold. There was like one row of, of uh, just people about 19 years of age in front of me. 
Uh, and then it was me. Uh, but yeah, that was, that was it. And it was, I, I enjoyed myself fairly fine. So, I, I mean, I wasn't counting down the days till Deadpool 2 by any means of the imagination. Oh, stay tuned here in a moment. You're going to hear us talk in depth about Deadpool 2. Before we get there, I want to remind you that we are the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. You can find other of our podcasts over at thecinematropolis.com. And you can follow us on social media, on Twitter at thecinematrop, Instagram at thecinematrop, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the cinematropolis we actually took a month off last month what so i know loud is that a lot well there's there was this there was this film festival in austin called south by southwest and then there's and then i immediately had to move and uh it's just been a crazy month yeah seriously uh so our monthly episode we missed april but we're back in may and we're gonna have a lot of stuff in june yeah dead center just consider that you know charging the batteries for june because june's gonna be absolutely insane in terms of content volume and quality content oh yes it's not just quantity it's quality 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 content volume we've all value here at the cinematropolis.com on the cinematic schematic we value quality over quantity so um, but when you get both we're gonna be busting our asses to give it to you (laughs) exactly bingo alexandra so thanks so much for sitting in for lauren this week yeah you bet I, I don't mind warming uh, that sweet man's uh, seat. Thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, you're here to hear us talk about those chimichangas, that fourth wall breaking merc with a mouth. Yes. Mercenary with a mouth. Without further ado, let's go ahead and jump right into our review of Deadpool 2. Mm. Actually, that may have been me. Oh, you're living the dreams, DP. Yeah. Devil me care attitude. <laughs> Strong thighs. Beautiful girlfriend. Sorry I'm late. I was rounding up all the gluten in the world and launching into space where it can't not hurt us ever again. Kiss me like you miss me, Red. What in the foxicle is this? My name's Cable. I'm here for the kid. What? The kid? Move or die. Deadpool 2, according to the IMDb synopsis, is a film. Yes, it is certainly a film. It's described as foul-mouthed mutant mercenary Wade Wilson, a.k.a. Deadpool, brings together a team of fellow mutant rogues to protect a young boy of supernatural abilities from the brutal time-traveling mutant Cable. I don't really like that synopsis. You don't? No. I mean... Cable's not that brutal. Okay. I mean, but... I mean, like, that's... I think that's splitting hairs. So, I mean, that's not to say, like, they can't drop any shit in there without spoiling the things that make the movie actually interesting. Yeah, so Alex, that's perfect. I actually wholeheartedly agree because this movie takes a lot of left turns. One of my criticisms about the first film was that Deadpool 1, I mean, it was fun. It was, it was really shocking because we'd never seen a, a superhero film be as irreverent and violent, R-rated, R-rated is that right? Uh, I'd never seen that many dick jokes in a superhero movie before. But when you strip away all of that stuff... 
Like, it really is about as basic an origin story as one can write. Snooze. Even though it's, like, riffing on origin stories, it still definitely does that. Right, yeah. Which is hilarious. And this one doesn't do that. This one's a a lot more complex. Like, there's a a plot, yeah, there's a plot twist right at the top of the movie in the first act uh, that really kind of changes the trajectory of the Mm storyline that I really appreciated. There's a couple big twisties that, you know, I mean, even if you, like, I'd say probably if you're, if you watched movies ever before you probably see the middle one happening but you know i mean it's still different you know like it's still it still could have been more just generic marvel superhero white guy of note you know right right but it wasn't it wasn't that they had a lot of the, the, the jokes are all there all the jokes everything we know from the first one is all still there it's ramped up to like a 12 yeah and but the difference is that the plotting here is a lot different. I don't know if it's, you know, it's one could argue it might be a little clunky, but I actually would appreciate it that it's not telling another very copy paste superhero story. I'm like, oh, OK, there's a plot twist here. There's a plot twist there. And it just goes into some unexpected places. And I actually felt like this film had a lot more heart than the first one did. Concur. They're so super on the nose. They tell you what the theme of the movie is at the top of the movie, but and it's in a really funny sort of way. Yeah, and then it's like, and then the ending wraps up with, look, I told you it was this kind of movie, silly. And then, you know, it's like, wow, it is. And uh, I found it endearing. Oh, I, I agree. I, I, I thought it was great. and it, I, I gave actually it... cried a couple times. Ooh, a little teary-eyed. Yeah, yeah just, th- just just a, a smattering. Yeah. But that is that does say I got watery in Infinity War, but I actually did not cry, cry. Even, you know, when we have our I don't feel so good, et cetera. So. <laughs> I don't feel so good, Wade Wilson. Yeah. That should have happened. Tell me that happens in Deadpool 3. Uh, oh, damn. Yeah, that, yeah they better um, meme, meme the shit out of that. And that's another that leads me to another point. Before we talk about maybe some of our criticisms of the film, another thing I really liked about it was the fact that they they throw in all the references. They get, they get MC references that they throw in there. A lot of riffing on Fox specifically. They're still doing the whole Wolverine Origins jokes. Uh, there's some. I can't. I don't want to spoil all of them. But there's a, a lot of jokes that Caleb have been written exactly for Caleb. I mean the opening. The opening. The opening. So the opening shots of the movie. I mean, it won me over immediately because the the first joke of the movie, and I, I don't want to spoil it, but there's an opening shot of the movie, and I just lost it from right. that moment. As long as you know how big a, a fan Caleb is of the X Men franchise, the the chuckles will be very obviously apparent. Oh, yeah. oh yes, yeah. yeah, no, there was like there's like three or four jokes in this movie that I was laughing so hard my sides were hurting. I was tearing up as well, Alex, because I was laughing so hard. Ugh. Which I enjoyed the first one a lot. I, I got some great laughs out of it, but I don't remember. There's not like a lot of jokes I recall just laughing that I really that don't funny. remember the plot. Right. I remember that bridge sequence, the slow-mo bridge sequence, but I think that was in the trailer. And yeah, that's right. it. And then like some of the stuff where he's in the compound, like the origin story Yeah, parts. the origin story parts But, but yeah, so like weak. I don't. I don't remember a single joke. I don't remember who the bad guy is. And I don't remember... I mean, of course, I remember Deadpool's love interest. I remember he had a lot of burns on his face. That's about it. You know, it's funny. I actually... Again, I, I did not did not get around to rewatching Deadpool 1 uh, before watching this one. But I remember a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, the movie's coming out. I had to, to sit and think, who is the bad guy in that movie again? I couldn't who is even, the bad guy? I couldn't guy remember his... It's like the mad scientist who turns him into Deadpool. But like, oh. I couldn't even remember who the actor was. So I actually had to, like, sit and, I actually had to sit and think about it. And that's kind of how forgettable... 
I, like all the beat the villains are very forgettable the origin story is very paint by numbers like a lot of that I mean the best jo- that best thing in that movie that worked for me was the, all of the Colossus Deadpool stuff and then of course some of the fourth wall jokes consider Deadpool Doctor Strange but with fourth wall breaking dick jokes R-rated violence I mean you have a forgettable instantly forgettable white villain that I literally cannot yeah, yeah. cannot even picture yeah, what he did uh, and then you have like I don't know. I mean, he he gets his powers, and but except Deadpool isn't you know why so serious. It's all like lol XD, so random. I see you out there watching my movie, haha. Right, kind of stuff. right. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about things we didn't like about Deadpool too, though. Um, and I do have a big one, which is uh, Josh Brolin's Cable. I thought Josh Brolin was an excellent casting choice. Remember when I heard that, I was like, oh man, that's great. And I think it's hilarious that we get Josh Brolin being a villain in two of the biggest comic book movies of the year like within that come out within two weeks of each other that's just madness it's great but i didn't feel like he was really given a lot to do uh i mean i, I guess it's debatable i don't not that cable's like a super compelling villain but i didn't really feel like he embraced the role because they didn't really write much for him to embrace it just was he was pretty pretty flat honestly so for those of you who are big comic book nerds, Cable's the son of Jean Grey and Cyclops, which is pretty cool. That's really cool. So okay. They don't acknowledge that in this movie at all. No, 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 no. I know, but I'm just trying to think, like, so timeline-wise, would Cable then be in our age? No, because he's the son of, like, Gen Xers. Wait, but this is the 90s. I'm just trying to think of, like, what generation we're on. You're thinking a little too hard about uh, time travel and X-Men already, Alexander. Uh, yeah, that's true. And honestly... I don't even know if they're going to go that route with this cable. That's how it is. That's a shame. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think they should at least acknowledge it. It's like a fun little Easter egg, you know? Um, bummer, dude. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Um, let me... So is his mutant ability just, I got a bio arm? Like, is that just how it is? And the fact that he has his, like, contact that he can see how guns work or whatever yeah he's like he's got like a power it's like kind of like a force but that's uh but that's a power he can well it's actually a computer okay that's where i was like is he mutant is he biometrically enhanced both okay both so basically long story short uh cable is a character that exists in the apocalypse came and like destroyed the planet like the thing that's the thing with the x-men there's always the distant future where it always ends up being terrible so we have uh, a character there there are a couple of major time traveling characters in the x-men universe mm. there's uh bishops the one who's the most iconic days of future past sort of thing gotcha uh he made an appearance in x-men days of future past but wasn't the guy who time traveled they ended up using you know a more marketable character uh Wolverine, you know, he Jackman yeah. to do the time traveling. Uh, but he's an iconic character. But the other guy is Cable, who is like in an even dis- more distant future where it's gotten even worse. Mm. So, K- yeah, Cable's like, but he's he's got some, I believe his powers are like he, he can, I believe he also has some healing of powers. But really, like the thing about him is he he's enhanced by machines. Mm. Uh, okay. And he fights, he fights. He, he typically is fighting like apocalypse or the apocalyptic future. This is the thing about the X-Men movies is they, they, they don't have their universe quite intact. And with Deadpool, I don't think they really need to try and connect that too much. Nah, nah, nah. It kind of exists in its own thing because even like Colossus and the Deadpool movies is not the same Colossus we see in the other X-Men movies. So oh. it's kind of, he, he, I mean, like it's, it's kind of related, but he exists in his own little pocket universe. Although this movie does have some nods to the X-Men cast from the mainline X-Men movies. So. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I do think is going back to your core premise that Josh Brolin's cable was not given a lot to do. Yeah. I'd probably agree with that. I mean, basically 
it's almost it's not phoned in because I know like in in moments where he's given something to do, he does it. Right. And he does it really well. And he does. I, OK, maybe this is more of a direction thing because maybe it's not so much that he doesn't have as much to do, but he's playing it so straight. Right. He's, he's very so serious. no. And I appreciate that, especially he's a. A really excellent foil to Deadpool. You just right. have to have a straight man whenever you have an eccentric comedy right. team up. Right. It works so well. However, I think he almost is so straight. It's like he's completely inflexible. And I don't know if that's because he wasn't given enough to do, but it's like, yeah, you're right. It just doesn't feel like there's a lot, a lot there right. to it, offer me. And even his motivation to come back in time, like, uh, I guess that, like, that could be a spoiler, but the, his motivation to come back and t- travel back in time in the first place, I found, I was like, eh, I mean, yes, that makes sense. But also I was like, mm, they don't really... I didn't really feel it at all. You know, she's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, this happened. Well, and then especially with how that big climactic sequence ends up resolving, like it almost undercuts because, okay, yes. so essentially oh, yeah. Yeah. he's given, you know, dancing around spoilers the best I can. It's like, so he's given his like fancy time travel, time, time travel watch that, you know, he's able to go forward and pass, but it only has the juice for like two two travels travels. so one is go there and the other one is come back although with alan tudyk's farmer what uh was that like was that 1980 like or was that the initial trip the initial trip back no he he arrived in deadpool's time it was just he was out in the middle of nowhere it it was funny because like he found these just like two country bumpkins in the middle of a like a like a field yeah yeah, and 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 it looked and it did look like i was like is this 1970 this is donald trump's america yeah okay but it's donald trump's america gotcha so anyway (laughs) but whenever so basically at a point uh cable has a choice to make and if his motivation for coming back in time in the first place was really that, like, it it, it de-emphasizes even further the motivation for coming right. back in time. Because he literally throws, he's like, that motivation, I'm going to throw it away. Yeah, exactly. It's like that Here, thing. Here, have I, this thing. The whole reason I did this, actually. Yes, but, I mean, I mean, you know, he he does the thing he needed to do, but then he's just like, whatever i'm just like yeah it, it's it, it i don't know odd. it's it's goofy and, and, and you know you don't take this movie too seriously no. i just and it's not like uh i, I just feel like they could have given that character more to do. yes you're right he is designed to be the straight man which is fine this cable is a self-serious 90s character let's make no bones about it he's a very hyper 90s early 90s x-men character yeah so he is very self-serious and grungy and vengeance driven all that stuff yeah but i just feel like the and the portray the characterization wasn't strong enough Mm, even if you're being straight laced there wasn't really enough about him i mean he just made took a lot of swings back at deadpool yeah i'd almost i would almost go for i mean you could either be they should have gone as deep on the straight man stuff as they i mean not to the point of being like you know batista from guardians like that level of straight man because i mean that's almost like to the point where i mean because his character only takes things literally we could get very close to that and i think that would have helped sell it a bit more sure um just being you know maybe in a little bit of uh michael michael bluth territory just like lean in harder there yeah yeah exactly yeah like michael bluth's a great example like he's straight man but he's got a lot of quirks that make him identify him right yeah this guy just feels like if he didn't know who cable was and he wasn't played by josh brolin would be 
very forgettable. Mm. All that said, uh, it's my biggest critique with the movie. I think the movie's actually uh, overall is uh, pretty strong. One other thing, I, and I sorry, I was going to go and just strictly criticisms. One other thing, I'm ju- I just thought of this movie does really well that I think the best X Men stories do is there's not really a clear cut villain, which I actually Dang. appreciate. Um, you know, in the, the the thing about the X Men movies that I love. And I'm sure I'll save this for whenever we eventually have our X-Men Dark Phoenix saga talk whenever that eventually comes out. Is like there are certain bad like Apocalypse is a pretty straightforward bad guy. Uh, but even Matt, but like most of their vil- their best villains, uh, Magneto, aren't like straight up like they're evil, but you really understand their cause and you kind of root for them a little bit. Um, and the best X-Men stories, specifically the ones that deal with the time travel, the thing that's really cool is uh, that there's not a clear-cut bad guy. There's just like a conflict that they're trying to like what one character these two characters are on a on the, on a trajectory to clash with each other mm-hmm. and neither one of their motivations is necessarily wrong but sure. um but they have to figure out a way to resolve it and the and the real enemy ends up being like just um hatred and these idea like race well not racism and bigotry you know it's not really racism in the x-men universe but that's well the, i mean the whole idea they literally address this in the deadpool film deadpool 2 like the idea that mutant kind was a stand-in in the 60s and the yeah. genesis of x-men yeah. for racism yeah. and bigotry towards you know people of different ethnicities and right. stuff so i mean yeah yeah to your point right right and then uh De- x-men days of future past did a really great job at that where it's like yeah technically there's these apocalyptic things sentinels that are like trying to kill everything but like the sentinels are just robot i mean in the context i mean just robots programmed to, to kill mutants like the and even the person who's killing the mutant like who invents the even the person who invents the sentinels uh peter dinklage in that film i mean he's not a good guy but like you know he's got like specific motivations for why he would do that. i mean he's definitely a bad guy but he's not like the bad guy it's just sure. like he's, a, he's another player people in this can be game. Bad without being the capital right. B bad guy, right? You know? And that's what I like about these stories, and I think this film does that really well because uh, Josh Bowen. I mean, and I, and I knew this from the market. I was like, "There's he's not the bad guy. He's in the marketing they play him out to be the bad guy." And sure. yes, he is. I guess in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, he's an antagonist. Yes, at first. Uh, he is. A, adver- he is an adversary of Deadpool. But in the end, really, what he's fighting for is not very much different from what Deadpool's fighting for. And they just, you know, again, just kind of butt heads initially on how they're going to handle that. Mm-hmm. One, uh, you know, uh, it's basically the whole stop Hitler thing. Do you time travel back and just assassinate him? Or do you, knowing who he's going to be, try to nurture him and guide him to not be an evil monster? Sure. So, you know what I mean? That's kind of yeah. the idea there. Yeah. We're getting really close to spoiling the, the things. I know. I, I know. That's so, why we should probably. Um, yeah. We'll go ahead and move on to spoilers. Uh, Alexandra, let's go ahead before we hit spoilers. How do we want to recommend the film? I would say that this is definitely a solid matinee watch. Um, if you're, especially if you're like a casual, you know, watchers, I think would really still enjoy this. It doesn't mean you need to know the entire backstory of the X-Men cinematic universe, like a certain someone at this table does. Uh, but, <laughs> which he deserves a medal for. Um, we're, we're talking about that, but like, honestly, that, that has no bearings on this movie. Whatsoever. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> I mean, it's more of like, if you know X-Men, you get juicy Easter eggs. Yes. And then otherwise, because then, you know, Caleb's elbow, I'm like, this is a joke, I think. And then Caleb's like, yeah, this, this is this this movie. And oh, and he did this thing. And I'm like, okay, cool. I caught up. But yeah, it's just kind of things like that. Um, but yeah, solid matinee. I mean, you could even, I would say full price, but maybe not even, but not Dolby. Full price, but you you don't need the, don't you don't need this. You don't need a VIP this stuff. I saw people wandering around the theater um, when Caleb and I went and saw it. 
And they were wearing like the like they had most of them had like Deadpool shirts on, and they had like the lanyards of like the VIP the, experience. They went to the two movies the, back the to two back. back to back, which honestly could be fun, but unless you're a diehard, unnecessary. Oh, it sounds exhausting. Yes, um, that was my when I watched Deadpool the second time, I was like, "Boy, this movie's exhausting." Right, right. Um, but yeah, so I would say matinee for casual, um, but you could spring the full price, and yeah, you wouldn't be disappointed. Yeah, um, I think I'm going to second that. You know, I, I I'll just stick I'll stick with the matinee. Like I I, I we we both use our movie pass uh, with this. It's an amazing movie. It, pass it's movie. perfect. I didn't feel I didn't feel like I was missing anything by not seeing it. Dolby. I mean, yes, some of the things would have been a little cooler, but it wasn't one of those like I don't know. It's a movie that I really enjoy. It's but not it, fucking Titanic and Dolby. That's, right, that's right. like the optimal movie. Or even uh, Infinity War, or yeah. uh, which uh, you know I have mixed feelings about that one. But I was like, you know, there's like a certain degree of spectacle. The 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 scope of this is actually relatively small. Yeah, which and I appreciate. I actually really appreciate that because I'm getting really tired of ridiculously huge like, stakes in the MCU. The idea, well, the and again, we've talked about this so much across all of our years podcasting together, but the idea that superhero films, it's like the stakes get so high that now they're at a point where it's like, okay, the world's destroying, the universe is destroying, and they just keep doing that over and over again because there's literally nowhere except, else to except go. Except for it gets bigger. It's like, oh my God, all of reality is going to be destroyed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I appreciate a small stakes story. And the, uh, with the exception, I think, of probably the last two X-Men movies, uh, Days of Future Past and um, Apocalypse, they're all pretty relatively small stakes, which and, is nice. And Logan was not... I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a relatively sm- small stakes game. I would too. say that the standout on Marvel's cinematic universe are the ones that they do they go for small stakes more so. Um, I would say the standout in like small stakes Marvel is I love um, Amazing Spider-Man. I think that I feel like those stakes are fairly still oh, small. Right, I mean, yeah. it's a very personal story. Right, right. Um, it's more ground it's, level. You exactly. Know? Yep. And then, um, but, and it feels more like Spider-Man. So I just like those, those stories, I think, cause, cause that at its core, I was contemplating the idea that, at the end of the day, superheroes are never perfect. They're they're humans, right. typically humans, not always, uh, but they're typically humanoid entities that have been thrust, given great power, and then to borrow, you know, Uncle Ben, to, for great responsibility. So right. these people are very flawed still at their core, but right. then have the powers to try and solve problems that are bigger than themselves, which I feel that Deadpool is an extremely flawed person. Oh, um, yeah, when well, he embraces uh, that. Yeah, yeah but he embraces it and then uses it to the betterment of society around him. Right, right. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, again, I'll stick with a matinee. I will say if you don't dig Deadpool 1, there's absolutely nothing for you here. And if you found the shtick from Deadpool 1 exhausting, it's you're probably going to be exhausted by this yeah. film. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of Deadpool 1, and I I actually found more here. I did too. There is so, more. I, I do think there's more substance. But So I, I guess like that's kind of like one of those nebulous... If you're curious, go for it, maybe. Right, right. yeah. No, I, I think this is, and I want to re-articulate this, I think this is a much better film than Deadpool 1. Concur. Uh, so, yeah, mat- matinee. Uh, I don't feel like I missed out not paying premium dollars for it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad I watched it in the theater. Concur. Absolutely. Well, Alexandra, let's go ahead and uh, talk a little bit of spoilers before we wrap up today's Silver Screen Soliloquy discussion on the cinematic schematic. So if you don't want to know anything about that, we're going to spoil the jokes, which were, uh, God, some of the... We have to, though, like, because there's so much. There's that's like so That's what much. half of it that makes the movie, man. Exactly. <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and spoil all of those, including the punchlines of jokes, 
now. Fourth wall break inside a fourth wall break. That's like 16 walls. So you have the post credit sequences, which will, I mean. Yes, you know, we'll they talk have, about. yeah, they have things. Uh, then we have the opening with, <laughs> they open with Logan st- on the, st- on the tree branch. On the tree branch. And it's a music box. And it's a music box spinning. And I, I just. Caleb lost his shit. I lost it. Well, because then he was talking about, he's like, he's riding my coattails with that rated R violent movie. <laughs> oh like, my God. Uh, yeah. It was just, it was so funny. It was, that was a glorious moment. Yes. Yeah. Great. Perfect opening. Right. Uh, but my favorite joke in the whole movie, yeah, even more so, I mean, again, po- the, cre- po- the, the credits stuff was A++, but my favorite was definitely the X-Force because the, the jumping out of the plane sequence. Yes. Because they spent so much time setting up the X-Force and they've been played up in the marketing materials. It's like, this is going to be a big part of this movie. And they are, because he's probably spent like 20 minutes to interview all these people, and we're going to like parachute out of this plane, we're going to set up this whole heist. Yeah, and there's Terry Crews, and yeah, 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 yeah there's like, like, there's like real actors in the X-Force. Yes. Well, actually, most of them don't have powers at all, except for... Well, they have solid powers. You got Acid Spitter, As- and then you have Electric Dude. Is yeah, that Terry Crews? I think, I think Electric Crews, yeah. Dude, and then you have Inviso Man and... Uh, <laughs> the Banisher? Ba- uh, okay, that's a... That's a, that's a, that's a okay, that's an amazing joke within itself. Oh, uh, ban- fuck yeah. Okay, so the, inter- so the good thing they interview all these people who you're like, wow, these are weird. And there's like one guy who's just really normal who showed up. He's like, yeah, man, I just... Uh, I'm just into I, it. I saw the ad and I just wanted to join the team. So they like accept him on the team. But anyway, my favorite's like, ooh, the Vanisher. We're really excited to interview him. And then like they just sit there and he's like, is he here? I think he must be running late. And they, they cut away. And then the next thing you see is like he's just like a backpack sitting on the plane. And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they all jump out of the plane, you just see a backpack, like a parachute with no one attached falling. And you're like, oh, there's no one actually there. <laughs> but then when they make the landing which by the way i just can't get over the fact they all die yes except for domino whose powers luck yeah because <laughs> well that's the whole punch also of that x-force sequences like they're like uh it's like look it's not a power yes it is no it isn't and then whenever deadpool is warned about the high winds exiting the hurricane oh my the God. helicopter that he's like so- whatever we're just gonna do it anyway and then everyone dies yeah. in a very traumatic way <laughs> uh, except for domino because she's lucky she's lucky her powers took her very far yeah um but gosh yeah seeing what's his name like a land right into the wood chipper or something like that. yeah I mean, the acid spitter the wood chipper and then he had uh Mr. Like Starfire, basically, who's like an alien, and he got caught in helicopter blades. Yeah. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then, amazing. okay. So I don't know. Do you do you want to spoil yeah. the Mr. Yeah, the, 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 the Banisher? So you see the backpack. He's like, well, the Banisher's still going, and we're all assuming that, yeah, but there's no one actually there. But then you see the backpack hit the power lines. Yeah. And then, oh, actually, someone was there. Not only was there someone there, it was, it was? Brad Pitt. Yeah. Brad Pitt as the <laughs> Banisher. As the Banisher. It's literally blink and you miss it because you see it for like a split second. It, yeah, but it turns him visible. He, yes, it does turn him visible. And I remember I looked over, I was like, Alex, is that Brad Pitt? Yes. I think that was Brad it Pitt was Brad because Pitt. you you know you just get like a glimpse and then of yeah. course the credits roll and it's Brad Pitt. Yeah, that was so funny. I lost it like how they were all just dying in the gore. Yeah, the, yeah. the helicopter blade. One of uh, Terry Crews hit the van, the bus, or something like that. Yeah, and then uh, the normie guy tried to save uh, Acid Spitter from the wood chipper, <laughs> yeah. and then like Acid Spitter starts coughing up blood, and of course it's acid, acid blood, blood, and then he like disintegrates the normie guy. <laughs> God, it's so funny. <laughs> it's so great. Oh, Oh man, that was that was my favorite because it was it just took so much setup. It know? was it was a big joke. Yeah. And like and also another thing 
I felt like the jokes landed better because it's because there was care in the setup because in like Deadpool one where the joke typically was lol I'm referencing that you're watching me in a movie and look I'm doing this bullet time on purpose or whatever right it the joke is actually being like the there's text in the movie that has to deal with this joke that's being set up over like 30 minutes right. and then it pays off really well right right and no, it has exactly. actually has nothing to do with breaking the fourth wall one exactly. of the best jokes of the film right because it's actually like a quality joke right because i mean it's not that the, okay it's not that the jokes in the first movie aren't quality it's no. that it's it, it doesn't rely just on exactly deadpool's it's, breaking it's, the fourth wall i mean breaking it's, the it's fourth wall yeah it's i mean it's kind of like it's cheap and he whenever it is used into it's used to great advantage like whenever and mostly now it's kind of like i mean with some exceptions it's kind of relegated to one-liners, which actually I think are fantastic. Right. I think that's where it should be. It shouldn't always just be t- constant, you know, bullshit of breaking the fourth wall is the only joke. My favorite one, and I was praying this would happen the entire time, was when Deadpool calls Josh Brolin Thanos. Yes, yes, that was I was great. like, if they don't great. do this, I'm going to be so angry. Right. And then it happened, and it was amazing. Uh, yeah, so that was uh, that. was that. But do we want to go into the, the plot? We've been da- tap dancing all around those Oh, you know words. what? I guess we, yeah, we didn't really yeah, talk I mean, about the plot. Yeah, uh, the, like, jokes the, jokes, the, the jokes were great. The jokes were great. Um, but, yeah. yeah, so basically his wife dies, uh, or, or partner. Yeah, wife. I think right. She, I guess, she is now that right. They are ready to have a baby. Yeah, and they have very. <laughs> that, that, it's so funny. You, she opens the box, and of course, I know that's an IUD right. and what that is, and the fact that he's like that. She says it's an IUD, and he's like, "Oh my god, it's going to explode." <laughs> <laughs> because of, what is it it's the the roadside bombs in like afghanistan right. are, are are called i uh oh shit i i remember what they're called but the, it's like basically the same letters and it's like no that's <laughs> so that, good that's not what it means oh man uh, that was great it was great but yeah it was so the way the trailer set it up so and actually the way the movie kind of sets it up too is that there's that wormy guy yeah. that shoots her right and that and it's, it's kind of set up that it was gonna he was gonna be chasing that guy through the rest of the movie and he nope. basically murders his ass with an oncoming car in like right. the next five minutes. Right. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was awesome. Because then it's like, well, what's this movie about? It, yeah. You know and that's mean? kind of, and that's where I was left with. And then they transition into he's grieving, tries to kill himself. And then uh, he gets, you know, put in like remediation kind of at the X-Men headquarters. Uh, okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. talk about that. I, I love, there you go. Oh yeah. I love, for you. Okay. I love how he joins. He gets like, he's joined the X-Men is the, trainee trainee right and then like <laughs> oh another amazing joke so at the standoff basically whenever the the kid that he's like trying to, to to connect with um who is in hunt for the wilder people yes correct? yes yeah. the hunt for wilder people kid yes is uh about to blow people up my favorite joke the jared kushner joke so one of the like one of the, oh, the orderlies orderlies yeah. definitely looks like jared kushner he <laughs> and then he's like he shoots him and it's like, what? Just Jared Kushner, man. Yeah, it was great. It was, God, that was so funny. Yeah. Just because, I mean, it's again, great timeliness. I mean, because uh, Jared Kushner's only been really a thing in the last like year and a half. Yeah. Maybe two years, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like in the zeitgeist, certainly yeah. for, you know, just a little sneeze of time here. It's like one of those things I'm not sure if people in 20 years are going to Oh, it's that not, joke, I, that's not going to But age it's well. amazing. <laughs> like right now, right now, it's amazing. I was yeah. like, oh my God, that's such a funny little nod. But yeah, um, I love how. It, <laughs> 
So he, he gets the breathe that, oh, these people are abusive, and he just straight up shoots that guy. And yeah. Then, and then Colossus is like, no, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, I was going to let you take the uh, the one that the joke that gave you much joy about the fact that Deadpool goes into, you know, the Xavier school for gifted youngsters. Or oh, whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's yeah. like, OK, the school's yeah. very empty. Yeah, of course. And that was the thing in the first one. It's like it's like there's only Colossus and whatever super nega, whatever her name is, girl. Yeah. Uh, sexy lesbian girl. <laughs> yeah, she was now who is now fully sexy lesbian girl. Yeah. Embracing it, and she has like a kind of like a knives chow type. Like girlfriend, girlfriend yeah. which is adorable. Yeah, no, it was, and there were some good jokes there too. Yeah, My Little Pony. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, basically, so they bring that joke back up. He's actually in the X Man. She's like, Where's everyone at? Oh, he's riding around in Professor X's wheelchair. Yes. Uh, and he's like, Where's everyone at? Does they, did they, do they not have the budget to put more X Men? Well, this is the sequel. We have, we, we made lots of money. Where's everyone at? And Col- him and Colossus have a talk where he keeps <laughs> crapping Colossus's. His, uh, his butt and like smacking yeah. and stuff. But then like there's a scene where he's being really loud and, he, and they, the camera cuts to a bunch of the X-Men from the Dark Phoenix movie that's in the making. Yeah, like, and it's like, like a room just full of every single and, X-Men you want to see in this right, movie. Right, and they close the door. Yeah, and they're like, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> and then that's that, and that's yes. all you needed. Which I found out doing some research that was actually filmed on the set of X-Men, the Dark Phoenix, not ah, actually Deadpool 2. That was, that's cool. So that was like kind of like a little bit of a thing thrown in there see that's how later. they can do their crossover stuff they don't have it figured out but sometimes they do clever thing, things like that yeah that's so. that's that was just too pro yeah Loved that was it. i know me too it was great there, but they, yeah. are, there they are there's but, all the people we want to see but yeah so the entire time i guess after that uneven footing he gets the guy that he says he's going to get and I'm like okay what's this movie about the fact that he and the kid, because of the shit they just did taken to jail like mutant jail and then after that he's like really uh, and, and asked the kid, and then the kid becomes friends with the juggernaut bitch, and then uh, oh come on, why was there no juggernaut bitch? bitch? I here's was that was I was more I was pretty disappointed about. I that am too that joke. because here's the thing: it didn't work in X Men Three, but it would have worked in this movie. Like in X Men Three, it was weird because it was like not yeah. yeah but, but but the internet wanted this so hard. I don't know why that. Maybe they thought it was too easy. I, but but I everyone would have shit their it, pants over it. It would have worked so much better in Deadpool too. Yeah. But yeah, no no juggernaut bitch joke. But the juggernaut is there. Also yes. uh, found out voiced by Ryan Reynolds. Oh really? Mm-hmm. All I mean, right. They, they of course modulate you know yeah, modify yeah, yeah. his voice. Because I was wondering who was in that. They also reference at one point when he and uh, Colossus fight. Uh, they're like, now it's time for a giant CGI battle. And I'm like, yes, that's so real because that did happen. Um, but yeah, so the fact that the kid. So the actual quote, if you want to look at like real villain, but that again, like you said, X-Men universe villainy is ambiguous. So you have, um, you basically well, there have, is a villainous character. It's the character who runs the, Oh yeah, runs, absolutely. Which, by the way, completely another, normal ass dude. Uh, uh, yes. From the, the troop of, uh, the yeah, uh, Simon Pegg troop. Yeah. He was yeah. in world's end. Uh, he, oh, shit. I actually forgot that actor's name, but he's, he's one of my favorite British actors. Anytime he shows up, I'm just like, Oh, it's you. He always like does a really good supporting kind of character. Matt Damon was in this movie. Wait, what? He was redneck number two. He was the other redneck. It was Alan Tudyk and, and Matt Damon. And Matt da- they I, didn't they didn't put Alan Tudyk's face or Matt Damon's face well in focus no. and intentionally. And I was like that profile though in the gingerness. I think that's Alan Tudyk, but he was like skinny. The Matt Damon character was fat. Like, he had a big beard. What is gut. Matt Damon making all these cameos in Marvel films these days? Because yeah. he was also in Thor Ragnarok as uh, Loki. 
Oh, that's and, uh, right. He was. Yeah. Oh, that works so well. Yeah. Um, uh, but yes, there is the, the villainous guy who runs the 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 home, uh, so to speak. And uh, it's, it's funny. It's it's named the it's like the Essex facility word, which by the way is a reference to uh, Mister Sinister from the X Men. So I, oh, I was like, nice. I was expect I was fully expecting Mister Sinister to show up as the villain, but oh, he didn't. Huh. But yeah. But the idea that the kid is going to wreak havoc with the Juggernaut's help and kill the the chap uh the university whatever the home's leader and then cable is there because he's like yeah in in my future the kid actually becomes like an all-powerful mutant who just kills indiscriminately because he has a thirst for blood and he killed my family and so the whole debate between cable and ryan reynolds after they make the peace is how they're going to deal with this situation. Right. And so again, the the real villain, yeah, is the home leader. Right. But the fact that right. the, the 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 guy they're trying to defeat is basically the kid. Right. And the, the juggernaut. They're trying to keep the kid from becoming a killer. Yes. Right. Which yeah. I think is great. It ties back into the kind of the loop or sub uh, time, brain of time travel. Yeah. Also, the fact that the kid in that future totally unintentionally looks like the Undertaker. He does look <laughs> exactly the, like, like the Whenever the Undertaker has the hood up and the long, the long nasty the, hair. Greasy hair. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, ten out, yeah, looks just like the Undertaker. So the headmaster of the home was played by uh, his name's Eddie Marzen. Eddie, yeah, yeah. yeah so, uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. There wasn't a clear. He was the most villainous character because he was like exporting children, the mutant powers. Oh yeah, absolutely. And was weirdly Disgusting. religious and all that stuff. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And then Domino comes in and then kills a bunch of the orderlies, which I leaned over to Kaylor and it's like she's basically walking final destination because yeah. because of her luck she can just punch someone and then that triggers a stream of events and they all die yes. tragically and right. scarily you know um but yeah like the idea so we get to the very end we have deadpool choosing to sacrifice himself as a show of good faith okay that's one bit that i think went on a little too long by the yes. way there's a totally scene where he's agree. like he's like laying on the ground and he's like saying his final words it doesn't stop it goes on for like 5 minutes yeah it could have ended one it was funny there's a point where it was funny yeah. but then it kept going there was a point it's like it, it could have ended a little bit sooner but i like the idea behind it right. but it just wasn't it was just too much when i think that idea the, the joke for them probably was how long can we stretch this out and make it funnier but like for me after like the second or third time he fake comes back i was like okay yeah. really but the kid um so basically cable realizes that his timeline is better because he had the stuffed rabbit that was burned in the explosion right yeah that's how kid. we modify if the time travels worked if the rabbit the, his his daughter's rabbit was burned then it was had he hadn't fixed it yet but when it wasn't burned he was it was fine um but then okay so now that we can talk spoilers the shenanigans of the idea that uh, cable 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 chooses not to go back to his future even though that's exactly why he came back was to say and he saved deadpool's ass with his infinity gauntlet time stone yeah yeah which it, again, it's hilarious. He's it a big make, bad guy it, with it, time travel powers within two listen, weeks of each other. And I know, universe. listen, I know this is a time travel film, and I know this is a com- more. It's a comedy more than anything, but I still would have appreciated there being enough human element for him to not just be like, "Oh, what about your family? Ah, they're good." That's the point. The whole reason you came back was to like, like save your, your family. Your wife is gonna miss miss you, presumably, along with your kid. Yeah, it was really weird. But, okay, but then in the post-credit sequence, well, we're yes. going to talk about right. that. Yes. Um, like, the plot of the tiny little post-credit sequence is that Deadpool gets gets what's her bucket to fix the yeah. the watch so he can go back in time and fix a whole bunch of stuff including oh okay so there's two of them the first one is he goes back to wolverine origins 
So for those of you remember, okay, so this is something Caleb had to explain to me. Okay, having never seen Wolverine. Okay, so Wolverine Origins is the worst X Men movie, hands down. It's one of the worst superhero movies. It's really bad. There, weirdly, there are good things about it, but it's generally just really terrible. It was also the first appearance of Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, and he's really Ryan Reynolds is really only in the first scene as himself. Uh, he comes back at the end of the movie as the main bad guy that Stryker has given all these weird mutant powers to, but they also sew his mouth shut. Notoriously, everyone hated it. They're like, why would you shut Deadpool's mouth? Why would he have all these dumb powers? Like, everyone hated it, right? Right. Like, more than anything else on the movie. Yeah, and you were saying to me uh, after we left the theater that this was their attempt in, like, tw- 2009 to backdoor Deadpool. Yes, exactly. They were The, the, goal, the goal was to back, do a... De- like, Wolverine Origins was originally going to be the beginning of an origin series. Back when Fox, they had wrapped up the uh, X-Men trilogy and it wasn't great so, but then they, then they 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 said we're gonna make a wolverine origins we're gonna make a magneto origins and then they're like we're gonna put deadpool in this movie and if it does well and ryan reynolds is banking on it at the time he's like they're like and you know we're gonna put this a lot of these characters in here and if they do well we'll make their own origin spinoff movie and ryan reynolds was banking on that to be like a way to set and they're at the time that movie was in development well the movie made money but everyone hated it like almost universally uh, that's the weird thing. Like it did make a lot of money, but just everyone hated it. Yeah, the Deadpool portrayal was just not pot. So of course, like there was no good follow. They never really followed up on any of the stuff in that movie. Even the next Wolverine movie was the Wolverine set in Japan. Not I doesn't thought reference that that movie the and the thing. Wolverine were the same movie. No, 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 <laughs> no. The Wolverine <laughs> is actually quite good. The, the Wolverine has some problems in the last act, but it's actually quite good. It's very, very, very good. That's why I was really. I was like, oh, there's another Wolverine movie. Yes, that. there are three. <laughs> Wolverine movies and the, for, the first one is Origins. So anyway, there's a scene whenever the doors, oh, you, it cuts back to a scene from Wolverine Origins in the third act when these doors open, kind of Darth Maul style and from uh, the Phantom Menace. And then you see Ryan, Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, but he does, he's like got all those scars on him and in, stuff. Like, in the OG Deadpool. Right. There in the, in the original, yes, in the original Wolverine Origins. And then like, they just, they actually have Hugh Jack, they reuse footage of Hugh Jackman talking to, to him and then... <laughs> Ryan Reynolds current Deadpool from this movie pops him in the head yeah which was great and she keeps shooting and him. keeps shooting him yeah like after he's down the ground he just keeps going it's um, amazing and then the next one they cut to which is just as funny was it's a shot of Ryan Reynolds which by the way is in the X-Mansion they just re- it was really funny but uh, it's Ryan Reynolds and the X-Man mansion says, man, I'm fine. I'm really ready to finally make it the big time. And he's holding up a screenplay of the Green, Green Lantern. Lantern. <laughs> <laughs> Deadpool pops him from behind. He looks so, he's like such a little young baby lad too. Oh, yeah. Just, oh man, that was riotous. Oh my God. It was so, so funny. It was great. Yeah. Cause he, I mean, Deadpool in the spirit of the film, like he, re- oh, so also saves the wife in the post credit sequence. Right. Which what like it was a weird one i'm like okay sure you do have an infinity time travel doodad that's worn on your wrist this is where Uh, the time travel stuff breaks down yeah and well and it's just like we we had some amazing tender moments when deadpool kept trying to kill himself and he was trying because part of deadpool's shtick you know just like hugh jackman i mean just like logan is the fact, you know, he can't be he that quick healing shit. So like he's like mauled to death and but he can't actually die. Right. He's like decapitated, body in pieces, and they he reassembles himself. Right. Um so the fact that like he keeps trying to cross over to the other side is just like, these really tender moments. And that's where I was like actually crying. Yeah. You know, these really tender he couldn't, he moments. Couldn't reach his wife. Yeah. yeah. And so whenever they do reunite at the end, right. 
Um, and then they pull him. They save Deadpool with the time travel gimmick at the very end. Right. Again, t- Cable doing all that shit. So anyway, for them to like totally reverse on that, like that whole beautiful tragedy that just happened and the whole premise of like the true family is the one we made along the way like they're fucked up newton family and 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 them walking away in the sunset this is a family film blah 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 it was just kind of a strange choice i mean i guess yeah i guess they don't have to keep her dead and i guess that fans would be like okay he has a time trouble it seems like it's it's where you remove the stakes from this movie though and again i know it's a comedy so you're not supposed to take it too seriously but there is that and the thing i like about it is it does feel like there's more of an emotional core to this one than the first one yeah so i would hate for them and to so completely you just, undo you it you turn on all the emotional the emotional stakes right. in the film in a post-credit sequence right. which cool i mean it's great that he saves her and we'll see if it sticks in the third one well yeah yeah i mean that post-credits thing might not be acknowledged or it, it, it will be maybe in, in a fourth wall breaking kind of way but right right but not from a plot perspective yeah but, uh, oh and also that uh the his the friend the cab driver actually uh kills the oh yeah he kills the, in his, the uh, yes the with his car he drives his car and kills the the headmaster yeah yeah that was really funny yeah good jokes lots of jokes lots of jokes um, and some some sick plot yeah it was really good yeah it wasn't yeah. like again it wasn't like i didn't feel like it was a story we've seen a million times already you oh, know what i mean absolutely it, that's why it felt really fresh and nice and and again i you know fortunately there's kind of like been a halt on the disney fox merger because comcast is now trying to like get into that game so i'm really glad the breaks been put on that because i really like that fox is doing their own thing marvel yeah. would never the mcu even marvel non-mc would never make this movie and yeah. i i have and even with the x-men films they're, they're clearly trying different things that i appreciate i i like i like go- the different voice it I feels fresh it feels fresh it doesn't feel like the same template you know what i mean it doesn't or it doesn't feel like the same brand standards or, yeah or or the, you know? it's like almost at this point because you know like i'd say thor 3 pretty much subverts the template but i at the same time it's it, still okay it's okay still... fair enough yeah 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 it goes it goes to, it, it changes templates from thor to guardians which yeah, yeah. it's okay. still it's still it's i i was gonna it's a little goofy but it still feels like an mcu movie right that was what i where i was going with that i was about to say it tonally it's not even that the templates whatever those are being changed and they're trying new things whatever tonally it still fits within the mcu and this film fits feels very much like an x-men movie like a fox film. right right yeah right, yeah definitely with the deadpool brand anyway but yeah, uh, but yeah I, I appreciate that so i'm glad uh, that this movie's already making tons of money uh so i i would hate to see that I'd honestly, and I might—I know I'm in the minority for this. I really hope Marvel doesn't get X Men and Deadpool back because I really like—I I, I like the—I like the difference and the—I like the variety. Well, also for our history of the world, I just don't need one brand player controlling all of these yeah. giant franchises, which exactly. is really boring, and that's why. I don't know. Well, it, it just is like means like everything tastes like soy burgers. I don't know. Just right. everything is so samey tasting. Well, yeah, or another example: Disney never would have made Logan. Never. Oh my god, no. No, and that movie. Yeah, a and that movie is it's great, fucking phenomenal. Yeah. Ten out of ten. You it's need one to of the watch best before movies. you die. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so again, I, I I'm glad to see more, uh, this movie performing really well. I hope the merger doesn't go through because I don't think we'll get to see films like this that feel very different, unique, and fresh. Yeah. So. And and I kind of like the idea that disney has at least one 
tiny, tiny slash large obstacles so they can't always just get their fucking way all the time. Well, there's you that know? too. In the idea that they're having to do these workarounds, I mean, the Scarlet Witch is an X-Man. Yeah, that's like, there's some crossover there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but the fact that they, they're like, oh, these Russian twins in Age of Ultron, right. but they can't say that they're X-Men, you know? They can't, yeah, they can't um, call them X-Men or mutants. Or mutants or any of that. Yeah. So I like that they're being subverted a little bit, right. and that means they have to try. Right, they have to do some different things. Yeah. Uh, they also don't have that rights to the Fantastic Four. Silver, that's because Silver Surfer would have actually been a player in Infinity War had they. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, neither here nor there. All right. Well, that will do it for our Deadpool 2 discussion. This is great, Alex. Thanks for sitting down and joining us today to talk about you it. You betcha. I like being in the hot seat. Ooh, so. the hot seat. Yeah. I'm sure. But you're you're never, but you're not going to get rid of me so easily because I'm about to talk some more. You're about to talk <laughs> more about music. Yeah. Woo. So, listeners out there, just make sure to go ahead and stay tuned. We'll be right back after this break. Cause I've been shaking, I've been bending backwards till I'm broke. Watching all these dreams go up in smoke. Let beauty come out of ashes. Let beauty come out of ashes. everyone and welcome to soundtrack your friendly neighborhood film music podcast segment on the cinematic schematic for the cinematropolis.com my name is alexander bohannon and i'm the host of soundtrack your guide and curator for the segment 
But as as always, I'm not alone. Join me in our official, not official podcasting studio because I wrote these notes when I thought that we'd have our studio set up. Uh, sir, will you introduce yourself? That was not a read. I'm sorry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Caleb Masters. I am in charge of the construction of, the, of said studio and... <laughs> There were some speed bumps along the way. Some speed bumps. Uh, it is in construction, but we're almost there. I can see it. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. And it looks like it's very much under construction. Yes, for sure. Uh, it is definitely a work a work zone at the moment. Caleb, you're in for a popcorn munching treat this month. We're about to celebrate the now end of April, thanks Disney, until August or even November, thanks Marvel, uh, in a phenomenon known as the Blockbuster. Woo! And Disney says... <laughs> Disney is, uh, Disney is now the person who decides when those start. Yes. We thought it was the Fast and Furious franchise, guys, but now Disney's playing the same trick. They're like, oh, you thought Blockbuster season started in May? Well, JK, guys, it starts in April now. Yeah, exactly. And since we're going to be talking about the Blockbuster this month, for me personally, I think it's really important to define our important you know, key, key terms at the top of the show. Um, so the definition that I thought was really uh, good and accurate for just the Blockbuster in general... Um, um, it's a work of entertainment, especially a feature film, but can include other media that is highly popular and financially successful. But the term has also come to refer to any large budget production intended to be a blockbuster uh, aimed at mass markets and, of course, associated merchandising, um, of course, on sometimes a scale uh, that means that the film or studio could depend on this is going to be hit. We're going to break it on the cash. One thing I really find interesting about that particular definition is the phrase intentionality yes. of success. Right. Because they're like, we're going to bank on this making millions upon billions of dollars. It's a big risk, right? Yeah. And that's why they're trying to be less risky in giving offerings that they know are going to make nerds see it. Ahem, solo, ahem, not. Um, MCU. MCU, not, uh, uh, but yeah. Crowd pleasers, yeah. Crowd pleasers, right. Uh, but that's not how it started, though. I mean, so that intro, obviously, I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard of a little film called Jaws. I felt like I was being chased <laughs> the entire opening <laughs> sequence here. I was like, oh my God, something's right behind me and I can't shake the feeling. Exactly. Uh, but Jaws is considered by many to be one of the earliest blockbusters, actually almost being the prototype blockbuster. 1976 uh, really re redefined the game for modern filmmaking, especially in terms of summer entertainment fare. Um, fun fact, one thing that I think is probably one of the reasons why Jaws has had an extended legacy is because of the music. Um, the art department whenever they were constructing those sharks, I'm sure everyone knows that they didn't work <laughs> very well at all. They looked stupid and they didn't read well on camera. Um, and so because of that, and then of course of budget limitations and, you know, the timeframes of turning a feature around, uh, Spielberg decided to m mostly suggest the animal's presence using the music. Yeah. Budgetary constraints. They had this mechanical shark they knew looked fake and they figured out, huh, we can't just show this thing off the whole time, so what can we do to make people feel afraid of it before they see it? Exactly. And, of course, relying upon uh, John Williams. Here he is again. Uh, this is John Williams before he was John, John Williams. John Williams, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this had been this is only his second collaboration with Spielberg at this point. Um, so, you know, using John Williams to leverage 
um, what even Williams cites is like this Hitchcockian way of increasing suspense, which I think thoroughly is way more impactful, helpful, and suspenseful than if they had actually gotten all the money and all the things to make the shark look super scary. It's it's the it's whenever you're watching Psycho, you're not there's really a lack of blood going on in that sour shower sequence. It's the, the punctuated stabbing made by Bernard Herman's incredible score. It's the, the score and the sound effects. It all makes you think you witnessed something far gorier and more exactly. terrifying than you actually did. Absolutely. That's the brilliance of, uh, of, of suspense and uh, great storytelling and suspense. You're way more afraid of that shark than that. That shark is not look very scary looking, but man, I swear to God, I thought that shark was going to jump out of the toilet the first time after I saw this movie. I was like, oh, he's everywhere. I mean, we're always going to need a bigger boat, Caleb. So the score. Uh, John Williams, hello. I mean, we talked about him a fair amount in March for Spielberg episode. I mean, a surprising lack of using his films, except for this one, obviously, on that episode. Uh, so Williams, this is his second collaboration with Spielberg. Um Williams composed the film score, earning him an Academy Award. Well, well fucking deserved. Oh, yes. Uh, his second win um, and first for original score. Um, so the actual main shark theme that we just heard, it's a simple alternating pattern of two notes. And this is, you know, cited from Wikipedia because my uh, music theory is a little rusty. Um, but so basically it's composing of a leading tone. So... According to Wiki, it's uh, an E and F or an E uh, F and F sharp. Donna. So basically, yeah, Donna. for layman's terms, exactly. Uh, so it becomes like that's that construction of those two notes is a classic piece of suspense music. Um, uh, synonymous with approaching danger, like that's kind of uh, the principle known as a leading tone kind of incurs that type of anxious feeling in an audience member or listener. Um, and then Williams, whenever describing the theme, um, he said he wanted to make something that was like grinding at you, just like a shark would do, instinctual, relentless, and unstoppable. The thing with Williams is that he, I mean, what a what a master of of his craft, making so many pieces of music that now have become iconic and you know to the point where people used to crib really hard on Williams uh to the point of being almost like in a weird like satirical they're like oh that's John Williams you know this big bombast or whatever but you know sometimes you forget like, we've, all, we've moved on to Hans Zimmer now yeah, that's the, yeah, new, yeah. The, the new guy we taunt <laughs> yeah or you know moving on from Hans Zimmer yeah it's like the like uber uber stranger things like synth heavy synth heavy right. stuff like you know this kind of like trends in film scoring which i find really interesting um but that's one thing that you know going back to williams and thinking about williams it's like wow i mean he is known as a master for a reason and for him to work on a piece of film music that a has like survived decades generate almost generations of film goers that it's still iconic you could still drop that in an episode of some like i don't know fairly odd parents or something and you would still I feel like even kids, even if they don't know, this is from Jaws. This movie came out in 1976. This movie is directed by Steven Spielberg and like are able to like cite quotes from it. Like they still know the cultural zeitgeist enough to know like what it's implying. Right. Which is so powerful and amazing about film. Well, and just the emotions. He still, those emotions shine through. Even if, even if a kid had never seen Jaws mm-hmm. and heard that score, they're still going to have those same feelings. Yeah. I mean, okay. I didn't see Jaws until college. So it's like, 
how many years did I know that was the music before I saw that? I mean, probably most of my life, Mm -hmm. you know, not having seen Jaws and knowing that's what Jaws is. I mean, that's that's incredible. You don't really typically have a lasting like motif like that in music unless it's something extremely special like what Williams did. But I mean, again, we can talk about John Williams probably for the rest of our lives. Honestly, I mean, the man has had such a prolific career and also the fact that he basically worked on the very first blockbuster, the movie until Star Wars, a film scored by John Williams came out, was the biggest, highest grossing movie. It's like this guy writes the, scores for all the biggest movies ever of the time of of period then, you know. Um, so now that we, you know, so if we're looking at this in a timeline, like this little segment episode thing, um, you know, we've established a concept of a blockbuster, you know, this progenitor with Jaws and you have Williams's score. So let's for- jump forward in time to the year 1989, where the world waited with bated breath after the announcement of a prominent new franchise that would, I would, I would say also change the course of movie history forever. What could it be? Caleb, I'm sure you have plenty to say about this particular film and piece of music. I am vengeance. Oh. <laughs> I am the knight. I am 
not quite Batman, but man, this score is all Batman. This is, you know, we've had a lot of Batman films since 1999, Tim Burton, but this is still the easily bar none, the most iconic Batman score. And a lot of that is first, it's just an incredible score. And they used it, uh, a adaptation of it in the arrangement of it, rather, I should say, uh, in the animated series as well. So it's one that's just really stuck around. I mean, it's just to get chills every time. Absolutely. Every single time. It doesn't, it, it just, I feel like it captures the bombast, the theatricality, except it, it sounds vaguely like an opera some, some of the time. You know what I mean? Like it just, it captures the dark mystery of Batman. Yeah. And it, it like, I just, I get feelings of the colors, black, purples, and blues. Like it all just, that dark mystery mysterious tone is just this is a plus yeah absolutely i mean one thing that is so fascinating to me because basically i mean this this you know dc and warner brothers they were talking about maybe reviving batman because at, at that point the most recent batman in popular media obviously the comics never died but like 60s tv batman with adam west like yeah, that's bam pow bam pow like that's people's most recent mental iteration of batman this was a big risk at the time this was huge this was a big deal also casting michael keaton as who we associate with batman now but as i've talked to like friends in the past it's like people had only seen him in movies like johnny dangerously which is like one of my favorite movies but it's like as a, a comedic a strictly comedic character or like a or more of a straight man but still yet in a comedy leading a comedy so um the fact that keaton leads the movie and you believe he's batman and i feel like 1989 tim burton batman i think gets batman yes in a way that i feel like other iterations of batman don't uh, yeah no I, I wholeheartedly agree they definitely have a certain take on batman that is a very strong portrayal of batman yeah and i, th- I still think the animated series is the definitive batman I, no but concur. it blends the comic book the f- media of film and tim burton's perfect fit by the way his his own little version of gothic horror that i think it all kind of blends together to make a really just stand out like we know this this version of batman yeah and i think that i mean obviously 89 batman paved a way for you know warner brothers to refine the vision of batman that was in the animated universe which just had it locked down which they have not been able to translate that shit back to screen i don't know they Uh, they had it they had the playbook they had the playbook there and they're just like nah bro they i mean they fumbled (laughs) the the football at like the 10 yards and then threw it to like an opposing football they player like and then they like, ran like, it the other way <laughs> i mean they were there first they were the first that was that was basically they, it yeah no the so this is getting a little bit away from tim burton's batman but the the dc animated universe uh which you can hear me talk all about in another podcast an animated discussion wait with the, caleb yeah. what other podcast is that yeah it's a it's a podcast called an animated discussion uh featuring uh pulp diction productions joshua under myself and we do we go through and do a recap episode by episode recap of batman the animated series we haven't we, we were on our first pass we're doing the higher like more acclaimed episodes or the, actually not even acclaimed the stick out standout episodes because yeah, not like all of them crazy are, love or is that the one with uh, mad love mad we, love we haven't gotten to that go. one yet but okay. yes that is very much on the list yeah um i should say i shouldn't say critically acclaimed the, the standout because some of them haven't been very good some of them have been amazing 
like like A plus. Like you're like, I can't believe this is a children's cartoon. children's cartoon, and it still holds uh, holds up despite like some of the age aging animation. The art direction was just so strong. Anyway, I love that animated series. Uh, but yes, uh, we post uh, every Monday. We're currently on a hiatus, but we're about to start back up with season two. Nice. We finished season one, took a break, and we're coming back for season two. Uh, we are also uh, going to kick season two off with a podcast over batman mask of the phantasm the, oh. the theatrically released batman the animated series film but caleb tim burton's 1989 game-changing film batman scored by danny elfman i mean wow this this at this point so elfman completed his score one month before it, the film's release Jeez. uh Get out of the wire which, shits oh my god uh burton so uh burton hired elfman of oingo boingo the that band um and elfman's collaborator on peewee's big adventure and beetlejuice um to compose the film's score um which was really interesting uh an interesting choice for um elfman he initially said he was kind of uncomfortable because he'd never done the stakes have never been higher for him. Right. Like, this was the pinnacle, the highest point well, of this where is, he was. This is kind of a high, wild, wild west, too, right? Because there wasn't a defined superhero genre at the time. No. I mean, we had Superman. We had the Richard Donner Superman from 1976, 78, something in there. Uh, that was it. Which and then also, Reeves. When did uh, Reeves come out? That was the same uh, the, one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry, sorry. Christopher Reeves starred um, in Richard Donner's uh, Superman. Derp, derp, derp. And Superman 2. Yeah, that was that was it, though. There right. Was, there was really nothing else before then. So it was Wild Wild West as far as figuring superheroes out. And also, uh, because it's a superhero film, it came with a huge budget, which I'm sure for a, a film score composer like Elfman was uh, quite intimidating. Yeah, and uh, producers were fairly skeptical until they heard the batman theme that you just heard and they literally shit themselves <laughs> basically because they're like oh my god this is batman like if you didn't know who batman was and he played that song i think you would understand th- what batman's I about think you would too you know yeah. it just captures so much and that's just the power of a compelling score right it, it the way a a film score can come can communicate themes and tone just so oh god it just nails it yeah and so, but one thing that's really interesting, a fun little tidbit. Uh, so basically the producers initially, because remember Prince does that's right. the love song right. on this, on the uh, soundtrack album of the score. Um, but How could forget Prince. Right. <laughs> How could you? Um, so basically they wanted Prince to write music for the, initially they wanted Prince to do, I, I guess like celebrity composed the album with he wrote the music for the Joker and Michael Jackson did the love song. That sounds right. Yeah. And then Elfman would take the style of Prince and the style of Jackman and then smush them together and then put that like that would be the undercurrent of the film music playing all other times. What? Isn't that nuts? I'm kind of dumbfounded a little bit there. Okay. To me, that's if like George Lucas was, wasn't talked out of his retro, like super stylized, like 1970s funk score idea, because that was his original vision. Was it to be like this retro, like he wanted to be super stylized disco music. Guys, I'm so uh, glad George Lucas at one point in his career had people telling him no. Yes. Um, so that would be like if he, if uh, Williams did not score Star Wars, that's like that kind of, you cannot divorce these two, I feel. Like, that 
I cannot think of the title card or the graphics or Michael Keaton or uh, Jack Nicholson as the Joker without thinking of that music. And that, to me, epitomizes what not just film music can do for just like your whatever normal film or indie film or a straight to like red box film, but also what it can do for the blockbuster gives you motifs and it gives you themes and it can give you a place that you instantly know what you're listening to in terms of what you're in for. What kind of world you're in. Yeah, exactly. One other really freaking cool piece of, of lore that again, you know, Jaws started the blockbuster. Batman, 89 Batman, started the superhero stuff like way before it got to Iron Man levels. Okay. But like. Also, one of the very first release, uh, release VHS tapes. Yes, that too. I didn't even have that in my notes. Thank you, Caleb. Yeah. Start the um, home, uh, home, uh, home video media craze. Yeah. The home video media craze. And then also was one of the earliest. Um, soundtracks to have two commercially released albums oh which is like that at the time was extremely uncommon if not not happening at all so it because okay remember last episode um if you haven't listened go listen but like finish this first and then go listen but i will cite something that happened last episode so we talk about how back to the future and the original press on rca only had like three of the score by Silvestri. It's three tracks in the score from Silvestri on that actual release. And the rest of it was kind of just like lost to the ether until a really great product label uh, known as La La Land Records uh, produced a re- and remastered and got all this film music together. And they're really great. Um, a great company that they get this film music that's kind of been lost to time and they kind of remaster it. There's like a lot of Batman like an animated series you could buy box sets gotta go. of gotta... all of that there's music. some batman <laughs> animated series has some amazing scores that are original for that series absolutely i still get i get tears every time i hear the mr freeze theme it is like tear instant tear inducing like you just oh god yeah um because so on the original 89 batman um, th- this the two albums thing will come into play later, and as we see now in modern era, that's like standard to have two albums per movie because you want to enjoy the film music, but then also frequently you'll have like song an original composition by Prince or uh, <laughs> Anna Managuchi or whomever on on this on more of like the actual. Uh, soundtrack album instead of just the score um, and that's kind of got its roots again Batman 89 changing the game for the rest of our lives um, but one thing again you were saying how Batman the animated series uh, with the roots in the score. So Shirley Walker ended up being basically the composer for Batman the animated series Ooh. and then worked on 89 Batman. So she carried obviously the opening credits on the the TV show came from that bat, original Batman theme, but then that was also she continued to score it and worked on that original film, which I thought was That's like so super cool. cool. Yeah. It's got its roots and it's like really really amazing. I mean, I'm just looking at this list in my notes just of all the going back to the iconicness of theme and how that can summon like mental pictures in your mind. Um 
the Batman theme from Danny Elfman um, was used in Lego Batman, the video game, uh, all these Lego Batman games. Um, and apparently the Justice League movie, which I haven't seen. Yeah, it's actually really great. I bet it is. Because they totally, there's a scene where uh, Commissioner Gordon, as played by J.K. Simmons, is on a roof and it's like a dark stormy night and they have a, just a brief music cue from Elfman's score that plays. Uh, and and then, then you're like, God damn it. Why is a, the best what, of the movie not like why this? Is the, that's the great movie we were referencing. Too bad. Yeah. It's never a good sign when you have to harken back to a more classical score. Bingo. To make people feel like the movie's good or you know i mean because you you know what christopher nolan did with his his uh batman films he did not acknowledge any of the danny elfman stuff and while i think danny elfman's score is far superior more memorable and stronger altogether that is kudos to nolan for kind of sticking his guns as making his own universe right and i think it does something altogether different yeah i mean that's a really two extremely excellent points that i'd love to address first the idea that you know film composers if they're feeling sly and if you and because music is such an easy way to convey emotion or tone of a scene or even elicit in a reaction from an audience member like you play a music cue like okay back in uh back to ready player one that we talked about there are a lot of really punchy music cues in that movie because i know we recorded that episode before we'd seen it at that point um there are some great punchy music cues in that and i'm like oh shit and then I get that like little little rush of joy because my my brain's being tickled. I'm like, oh, that's so cool that they did that thing, you know. And that's a really I hate saying cheap, but it kind of is cheap way it, it, of it, eliciting yes. a goodwill from an audience member by like, oh, remember that thing? It's I mean, it's the you know the whole prevalence of nostalgia culture that's been hot taked and think piece to death and all that stuff. Um, and so that's that's that one aspect of it. What we were saying and going back to Nolan's Batman, which I consider basically just a slightly Batman themed action movie. Kind of spy. Uh, depends on which spy one you're, actually depends on which one you're talking about because the dark Knights ninjas more too. Not, So yeah, ninjas is more the first one. The second one is more of a heist film, a yes. heist, uh, like heat type film. The third film is more like a spy thriller. Yeah. So, and Nolan's films feel so not, and and again, agreed kudos. Like, yeah, Zimmer score, not infinitely memorable for many of It's those. good and effective, but like, I'm never, like, and I can play it in my head, but I can't, like, hum it to you. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I don't have a bass in my hum to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I don't feel like those would be appropriate choices because that clearly misses the tone of those films. Like, it, it totally is a whiff. Like, and it, I feel that that is a very noble choice of him to like be like, okay, I want to do my own thing. This is so much my own thing that even though we have this classic portrayal of Batman and we have this classic theme that's just been established and well loved, you know, for 20 plus years, you know, um, but I'm going to go ahead and go forward with my own thing. So I do have one more track and we'll just take a little bit of a clip on this one because we really love Batman. We love Batman. <laughs> so, There's so much to talk about Batman. There is, especially whenever you're talking about good Batman uh, as well. <laughs> um, so this is another selection from Elfman's score. Um, it's the it's up to the cathedral 
it's that sequence. I'm trying to remember. It's at the end of the movie, whenever yeah. he's uh, he's climbing up the tower, yes. chasing the Joker. Yeah. Frequently, people will cite and like, oh, I was inspired by so and so, so and so, and so and so. Whenever they're talking about the composing they're doing, but um, there there appears to be a clear through line of again Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann specifically cited by these composers because because in you know both of these sequences with Jaws with Williams and then Elfman um, in this little particular track they're trying to increase the suspense and the uh, tension of the sequence and they do that expertly through the music they compose so let's listen to track 19 up to the cathedral 1989 Batman directed by Tim Burton and composed by Danny Elfman Well, one thing I found really interesting, he, uh, he, so Elfman didn't use a real church organ, uh, by, uh, in this particular piece, uh, he used an electric organ, um, which I found really fascinating. And, uh, I've never seen the film Mysterious Island, 1961, but he cites that as a major in Bernard Herrmann. He composed that for Mysterious Island. Again, going back to the idea that you can incur and increase suspense from your audience member, but also incorporate major motifs from the the like you can incur these major motifs that actually also help tell the story because even in that particular piece we never forget that Matt Batman is trying to climb a cathedral because we hear the Batman theme and then we also have the suspense portion mm-hmm. and I think uh, we're going to move on to a more modern set of blockbusting films in a second um, that were really kind of paved the way from Jaws to Batman and now to this modern era um, but that's a thing that one can argue is lost, honestly, in 
in a lot of a lot of not all a lot of modern composing i think so there's a strong sense of theme that has been lost i feel like and you know i I would actually argue that even nolan's batman films are part of that like we moved away from the really catchy strong film themes that were built around specific motifs into more like what feels good in the moment like you know what i mean like it of course obviously the feeling is is important but i i feel like we've moved into more like a generic I don't know, just things aren't as hummable as they used to be. Maybe I'm right. getting old and curmudgeon, but no. I just, like, ask me to hum any single MCU theme. I can't do it. I wonder, and this is me, you know, just kind of spitballing with not a lot of evidence to cite besides my own film-going experience, but it seems like in our more... I think at some point, someone, some adult, misguided adult out there, said that th- themes are cheesy to some film executive and then they like basically told all of their buddies and they're like no more themes anymore ever because that's because like whenever i think of this like like and i think of indiana jones and i think of jurassic park and you think of all these iconic scores that like as soon as you hear them you know exactly what they're from exactly what it is in here okay i think the more most recent example harry potter like you can instantly think of and and in Some fact, they theme. and they, in fact they ditched the Hedwig's theme from John Williams for a couple of the movies, they and, did. I, and I I felt that missing. I was like, I mean, these movies are mostly good, but man, I really miss Hedwig's theme. So that when they brought it back, it was like a big deal. I was like, oh my god, yeah. I feel like Harry. It feels like Harry Potter again. Exactly, and that's you know, for good or for ill, themes can be used to increase, uh, I mean, obviously brand awareness, if you're going to talk more like... Well, and even with Harry Potter, right? We're still in front of these new Fantastic Beasts or whatever you want to... Series, like, they still play some sort of riff on yeah, it is Hedwig's a riff. theme. Mm-hmm. Like, just a little bit, because you know that the Hedwig's theme riff happens at the end of the trailer after it cuts to black, and it's like, da na 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 and then it, like, usually it changes after the the first three or four notes. But, like, but yeah, they, they totally go back, because they're like, hey, remind you what this thing is, and one better way, what other way to do it is through a bunch of uh, movie, film, film, you know, junk files files in your brain right. you know yeah, exactly. it's like hey remember that movie you loved well hey we're gonna here, it is, my, again. here it is again so right. go see our movie <laughs> right and so i mean for good or for ill i mean i think the big takeaway from this is that themes can be used appropriately yes. and themes can be used well and i think no uh, and then of course themes can be used poorly like you know and or cheaply it's just trying to find a good balance of that wherever that comes from and i think no more better case study of looking at the use of the theme in a in a sequential blockbuster is through our next set of films
Caleb, composed by Alan Silvestri in 2011. What what movie is that? Captain America. There you the go. First Avenger. first Avenger. Thank you very much. I don't I don't speak highly of MCU scores. I know. Alex, so this That's is why we're we're gonna have this delightful little tasty segment here. Um, so one quick note. Damn, is Alan Silvestri not solidly in his Indiana Jones hashtag not John Williams face? Oh my god, thank you. It just sounds like a it sounds like a poor man's Indiana Jones. It really does. So bad. Like I was actually, you know, I'm scrubbing YouTube trying to put this show together and like I come across this like the the um still for this for for this song on YouTube because it, it's not like com- like set with any of the film itself is like kind of a more gritty picture of Cap like holding his shield. Oh yeah. And then and then this bright Indiana Jones Raiders March comes on and right. like, what? What am, I, what am I listening to? <laughs> exactly. Um, but we're actually not here to talk about Captain America nor Alan Silvestri. <laughs> but I had to play that because we're gonna be talking about the Thor franchise. Um the Thor franchise. Yes. Yeah, so the most ridiculous part of having over ten years of Marvel movie content is a Alan Silvestri was the first composer to work on multiple MCU films, but that didn't start happening until like he composed, did captain America first Avenger to the Avengers, but he's, but he is the person that has the most films scored under his belt, which I think including I think including Infinity War, and I actually can't remember if he did Age of Ultron. I think he did, so I think that's four. But that's only four. Everyone else has been like, it's the Wild West. Out of like MCU is just like movies. Yeah, MCU is just like, hey, hire this guy. Hey, hire this guy. You know, which I think is like, it's kind of bonkers. It blows my mind. It actually (laughs) underlines what the hell's wrong with their scores. Exactly, ten out of ten. I would agree. So, okay, so think of think of this. What we just heard, Captain America's uh, theme from that from that section, and then we're gonna listen to this really quick. We'll be right back. I hope so. I mean, you just heard it <laughs> before that song. But the like one a before. nod to a previous film. Holy shit. <laughs> so composed in 2013 for Thor The Dark World, Brian Tyler was the first composer to reference the work of another MCU composer across franchises when he quoted Silvestri's Cap theme in his score for Thor The Dark World. Now, keep in mind MCU timeline. Iron Man 2008. We got till 2013 before any other composer cited anybody else's work. And that's the problem. That's that's uh, five years. That's So that's half the lifespan of the MCU. Yes. It took us that long before we were citing other people's like, oh, let's establish a theme and let's use it across franchises. Man, what's wrong with them? I, I don't get like... Uh... It, it, all their theme, all of their scores, and even, some of them aren't bad, but they always seem like an afterthought, and so therefore it doesn't really feel like it matches the character or any of that very well. Yeah, I mean, even the Avengers theme is like 
super vanilla. Okay. And 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 so Alan Silvestri actually talks about that a little bit. So he has this quote where he says if we we knew that if we were to have a theme for every character in this movie, this is him citing adventures, the music would get very clunky and intrusive. That's pretty valid, I'd say. Sure. So I stayed away from all of that. I think that's the wrong solution, though. <laughs> Instead, Marvel and Whedon wanted to compose a central, definable Avengers theme for the film, which I wanted to have a heroic aspect and grandness, but he wanted it to be generated from the scene where they're all gathering for the last great battle. Um, so... Basically, ah, uh, God, it's like, yes, I understand. There is a lot of comic book cr- characters in this movie that now have had their own movies and, yes, have their own themes because film scores work that way. But, like, I don't think that's, like, the right choice to just be, like, none of it. I mean, that little segment in Thor The Dark World, I watched it tick away. It was, like, 10 seconds just barely any time. And it was within a one other song. I actually had to dig really hard to find out find what, that specific find this piece. specific like song. Cause it says that it was, you know, cited, but the fact that that was the first piece that was ever cited in someone else's score. It's so bonkers. Yeah. And the idea, you'd think that in an adventure somewhere, they'd have some sort of music cue, even if it's a light, like really light motif. It doesn't have to be, I mean, okay, audience, you heard how simple a theme and a, a like a theme like a motif can be. Literally two notes. We heard that with Jaws. Like it doesn't have to be hitting you over the head with it. I mean, it it really ju- just has to be a cue. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant, but just enough to be like, oh shit, this feels like part of the thing that I've been watching for the past ten years. Which I, again, going back to MCU's issues is specifically in the regard to scoring is that they're all vanilla and vaguely forgettable. Okay. We think Harry Potter. We also think, you know, we think Harry Potter. Uh, we, I always come back to John Williams cause John Williams has done nothing but star Wars. I mean, imagine if like every, every star Wars movie had like a different component well, of, of the main ones. Well, and even the, the one spinoff we've had that John Williams didn't do uh rogue one references, Absolutely. The Star Wars music a lot. Yeah. Because people know. Because it feels like It feels like Star Star Wars. Wars. Right. Yeah. Like, it's... We don't need to reinvent the wheel. I mean, that would be, like, how you were saying where we lost Hedwig's theme for a little bit because... Williams did. He did the first three. He did, the, he did do the first three, and then we went on to Patrick Doyle later on. Um, but like, eventually we got to uh, Splat. Yeah, and who so does good stuff. yeah, so I mean, they all did good work, but like, just you don't want to have that central iconic, identifiable thing within your movie to like help you coalesce all of the pieces well, it's the together? whole it's the whole point of a theme the theme should be infinitely adaptable like it, it should be able to fit any like the thing about the harry potter films they often feel like each film's kind of its own little de- evolving genre you've got once an action movie once a mystery once a horror film uh and the thing about a strong theme is you can do different variations on that theme to kind of capture sure the motifs might be a little different but those same notes and that same melody are going to carry yeah and you can i mean again there are a lot of different ways to go about doing that you can make you could make a superman theme or batman you could make a superman theme sound really dark and gloomy but still like be like oh that's the superman theme so i have seen i feel at this point so we got 10 years and it took them a while to figure out this because I think they're course correcting now. And this is where I'm going to cite these examples. Um, so 
2011, we got Thor. Patrick Doyle did Harry Potter. And I think it's so interesting how, you know, earlier how we were talking about, you know, Tim Burton uh, with Danny Elfman and how that somehow, even though that Danny Elfman's composing the fact that Burton picked Elfman, it feels like it's, it feels like Tim Burton sounds, if that makes any right, sense. Right. Right. So, and it feels like Batman. So we have Patrick Doyle composing for Kenneth Branagh, which to me, this music sounds like how, when I think of Kenneth Branagh, this is kind of like my mental picture, like mental sound in my head. Whenever we're, we're talking this British classically trained actor. So, Caleb, some takeaways from from this. So this was this is the t- track and inter- titled Earth to Asgard. <laughs> okay, those are your takeaways. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like Kenneth Branagh directed this movie and then told it Patrick t- Doyle to play some stuff that sounds like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, that's exactly what happened. It, it picks up a little bit in the second half where I start to get to the point where I'm like, oh, yeah, this sounds kind of familiar like Thor. That first half is slow. That again, that, uh, that, yeah, what a mess. 
Yeah. Because I feel like the the parts of that film that work work very is the Shakespearean drama works really well, but the score just does not match that at all. I would just think at this point Marvel would have like one or two guys that do all the scores. That way they could make it all work together. Dude, yeah, like that seems like a very straightforward to make it more idea. cohesive, like it all fits in one universe or something. Like I get early on it was figuring stuff out, but by now you would think they would be onto something. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, what the fuck? Like, that seems like a fairly, like, no shit, you know? Like, give 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 some internal consistency throughout all of this process, you know? And even after they had got, they'd, they'd figured out the Avengers theme, maybe use it more frequently? Exactly. I don't know. It, just anything to make it more cohesive. Yeah, so, okay, by the time we get to Thor Ragnarok, though, so last year, 2017, you know, we got that first motif of that Thor stuff in 2011, so we get to 2017. Basically, at this point, I mean, we've they've already, like, broken the seal on starting to cite other composers. It's still not enough, in my opinion, and it sounds like yours, too. But by August 2016, so we have Mark Mothersbaugh, who is he's scoring Thor Ragnarok. And apparently this is really interesting to me. So he was influenced from a video essay from every frame of painting. Oh yeah. Yeah. So apparently there's a video uh, on every frame of painting that criticized all of this MCU scores because of literally their lack of memorability. And so he used that as a reason to make Ragnarok sound so different than whatever else had come before. And I think he does that successfully. It's the only MCU score that I own. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't, I've only seen that movie once. So yeah. I'm not, I'm well, not, I've only seen it once as well. The score's not ringing a bell, so I'm interested to hear the piece. Right. Um, so basically, because, you know, again, another cool case example with Thor. Thor starts off as like this kind of uh, highfalutin, classically trained Shakespearean space opera. And then we get into Thor 3, which is kind of Guardian's Light campy right. you know campy sci-fi which yeah, is, is like a, i they're think like it's crap. better they're like crap well we don't know what to do with thor uh i think the shakespearean drama angle was a strong angle they just didn't commit to enough they, uh, yeah they just didn't go all in they on didn't it. go in on it so you're like oh crap what do we do well guardians is doing real well so what if we made thor more like guardians exactly um and i think we got a fun movie out of it oh totally yeah i mean it's certainly not perfect but it's definitely doing something different which I think is interesting. Going back to hearing some reoccurring themes from the other films. Uh, this is from 2017's Thor Ragnarok, and this is called Where To, composed by Mark Mothersborough.
So that's another sided section from Patrick Doyle to Mark Mothersborough. But some of the stuff, again, like, I mean, that sounds a little bit more samey, but going to how he can make it sound so much more different um, in how far not just uh, Thor has come transitioning from being very a, a serious tragedy about gods in space to, you know, kind of campy, lighter, hard, lighthearted science fiction. Road trip movie with the Hulk. Road trip movie with the Hulk. Why is that not the tagline? So here's the Thor Ragnarok theme, which this is why I bought the soundtrack because this shit is lit. So here's that from uh, 2017's Thor Ragnarok. Yeah. You didn't mention that the Trans-Siberian Orchestra took over scoring for Ragnarok. (laughs) Oh, uh, yeah. That's real. But hey, that's okay. I'm a sucker for that kind of shit. That's way more memorable, though. Hey, hey, Trans-Siberian Orchestra's great. That does a compliment. Yeah, I mean, it's like transitioning to like a full, like a heavy synth in kind of more in keeping with something that sounds like that would keep up with Guardians, um, which I think is like such a great a great choice for Thor. I mean, it really, I think the transition of these scores really kind of demonstrates where it's going. And well, the fact that Thor is probably not going to, it, there's lots of, uh, it seems like it's Thor is going to be kind of smushed out of the MCU on solo movies. Chris Hemsworth's contract is uh, running up and I don't think Marvel's doing much to say it to To uh, resurrect it or renew it. Yeah. For sure. Um, and so I thought that today's uh, segment, which, you know, we need to kind of wrap it up and let y'all loose. But I thought it was so interesting because here we are coming from 1976 Jaws and just the importance of like how a score, a score in a theme specifically within a score, especially a blockbuster can help not just like help with like brand awareness and, you know, like actual like marketability to some extent uh because we all know the music that plays during the star wars opening crawl and that's just been programmed into us since birth so i i think that marvel's doing themselves a disservice but are trying to course correct through um their more recent offerings time will tell 
Black Panther has a great score. Yes, they do. Um, Black Panther does. And so I just, I think, listener, if you have one big takeaway, is just remember the importance of scoring. (laughs) I mean, that's basically my takeaway every episode. But it's just like the importance of scoring, especially in terms of how you remember and contextualize a film. I, I think that, you know the larger cultural zeitgeist, especially around blockbusters, it kind of wraps you up in a specific iconic theme. And honestly, it's taken me 10 years really to just get kind of a more of a handle on like the Avengers team, although it's not been 10 years since the Avengers, but they're the first one. But yeah, I mean, to, to be able to think of that's the Avengers theme, like, Oh, I finally know what it is, but you have to think real hard about think it. Think real hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's been our show, ladies and germs. My name, again, Alexandra Bohannon. I have been your host and curator for this segment. Uh, Caleb, do you want to plug some stuff, maybe some more? I could plug some stuff. All uh, right. Again, uh, the name's Caleb Masters. I'm the editor-in-chief at thecinematropolis.com. If you want to follow me on social media make sure to hit me up on twitter at c masters talk that's letter c masters talk uh, you can also uh hear me talk about movie thoughts on the cinematropolis.com or on letterboxd at c masters 91 and as i mentioned in this episode i have a uh, podcast called an animated discussion the dcau that i co-host with joshua unruh and it posts new episodes uh, where we talk about currently we're talking about batman the animated series and new episodes post every monday so make sure to head on over go ahead and give us a listen and subscribe if you want to hear us talk more about batman the animated series and as it always is with soundtrack we love uh listening to music and we want to be trucking again with you very soon so leaving us out um because of course all all major studio releases these days have their own um other album that is full of non uh, composed film songs uh of their soundtrack so this is one that was used in prominence uh 2017's thor ragnarok so we'll be just leaving you with a little little zep little immigrant song yay
thank you for listening to today's episode of the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com. This has been a Planet Thunder Productions co-production. The Cinematic Schematic score was produced by Vinnie Hogan, and the program was co-hosted and produced by Caleb Masters. This month's soundtrack was hosted by Alexandra Bohannon and Caleb Masters, and the segment featured selections from Jaws, Tim Burton's 1989 Batman, Captain America the First Avenger, Thor, Thor the Dark World, and Thor Ragnarok. Follow all of the updates on the Cinematic Schematic by liking the Cinematropolis on Facebook or by following us on Twitter or Instagram at the Cinematropolis, at the Cinematrop. Make sure to subscribe to the Cinematic Schematic on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or any podcast app of your choice, and I hope if you enjoyed the show, you'll go ahead and leave us a review. Tune in next month for all of the Cinematropolis' special coverage from the Oklahoma 2018 Dead Center Film Festival. The podcast will feature interviews with the filmmakers behind some of the festival's biggest films, including You People, Jurassic Games, and much, much more.